Vale, we're so happy that you could be here with us this morning. Why don't you stand and worship with us? everybody we're so happy you could be here with us this morning why don't you take a look around and see who's around you and say hello well good morning everyone i'm sam i'm one of the pastors on staff here it's a great beautiful morning to be here at church um, i have one announcement for us that I, I think we really need to pay attention to next sunday 
is daylight savings time, and it's the, the time that we pull our clocks back. And the reason we need to pay attention to that is if we don't, you're either going to be way early or you're going to be way late to a service. So we want to make sure you do that. If you have uh, younger kids like I do, we know the curse of that daylight savings time because they're up at like 5 a.m. wide awake running and screaming, and we're going, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's one of those kind of Sundays next week. So just make sure you pay attention to that and make sure you put your clocks back, all right? Uh, this morning, we're going to spend some time worshiping together um, in many different ways. We're going to sing some songs together. Um, we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Pastor Dan's going to come and share a message with us later. Um, But right now we get to uh, worship by giving back some of the resources that God has blessed us with. So as the ushers come forward uh, this morning, let's go to God in prayer. God, I I thank you so much for um, just this chance to come and to kind of just drop whatever it is that we've been going through and and kind of lay it at your feet and say, God, we worship you. We want to to say we love you and that everything that we are is about you. And so God, even um, the money that we have that we earn through various jobs or whatever it is, God, that you have um, blessed us with. God, we just want to lay that at your feet today, too, and say, um, God, use it however you want um, to bless others. And God, that we can be, um, we can play a small part in how you want to work and how you want to bless others. It's just an amazing thing. And so we give with that attitude in mind this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
a seat. Well, good morning again. Uh, we sing a song like that together that just kind of reminds us of faith. It reminds us of um, our journey. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can just think through the lyrics that you're singing and just uh, remembering, uh, remembering the, the times where you had those moments with Jesus where you can say, oh, I remember that first time I, I was given a, a picture of the cross and what that was like for me and the time of forgiveness and um, what it's going to be like and just to say, God, you're beautiful for, for all of these ways. And one of those ways that we can remember is through communion. Uh, once a month as a church community, we gather together and celebrate communion. Um, we eat a small piece of bread and, and drink a small cup of juice that reminds us of how Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood as a payment for our sins. That even though we don't deserve that kind of love, that kind of forgiveness, or that kind of mercy, God graciously extended that to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We've been spending uh, the past two weeks talking about the Holy Spirit and uh, his role in our lives as believers and followers of Jesus. And uh, in John fourteen twenty six, uh, this is what it says about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is speaking to his followers And he says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Part of the the Holy Spirit's role in our lives during this time of communion is to remind us of the truth about what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. And so when those emotions of love, gratitude, thankfulness, amazement, when they wash over you, when you're reminded of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit working inside of us leading us to a a place of total worship, of total surrender, where we can truly say you're beautiful for those things. So as we participate in communion this morning, I would would ask uh, all of us in here that we would allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and to remind us of the things that, that he needs to that will lead us to a greater place of worship uh, for his son, Jesus. Here at Hopevale, we, we say that you don't have to be a member to uh, participate in communion. All that we ask is that, um, that you're a follower of Jesus, that at some point in your life, you made the decision and the commitment, you understood your, your need for forgiveness of sins, and you found that forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ and his death on a cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so um, if that is you here this morning, we say you're welcome to participate. We, we love that we have those, uh, those of you uh, gathering here with us to do that. If that does not describe you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if there has not been a moment where you have made that decision or that commitment, we would ask that you would just let the uh, elements pass by. Um, and we do that for a couple reasons. Uh, the first reason we ask that is just out of respect and reverence for what we're doing here and, and the significance that it holds for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Uh, But the second reason that we would ask that is just out of respect for yourself, because we wouldn't want you to participate in something that uh, was just an empty ritual that you were doing or something that you were trying to partake in that just had little to no meaning for your life. And so um, if you would say here this morning, I'm not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask as the elements pass by that you would just let them pass by. Um, But as we are doing this, um, we would ask that you would consider a question. And that question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in your life? And what does the cross of Jesus mean to you? What does the resurrection of Jesus from the grave mean for you and for your life? What does forgiveness of sins mean for you? And so as we're doing this, as we're partaking in communion, we would ask that you would just contemplate those questions for your own life. If you're a parent of a small child, um, we would just ask that you would use your discretion as the elements are passed by. If they are followers of Jesus, if they've made that commitment, then we would love for them to participate with us. Um, but if they haven't, maybe this is a great time to be able to, to talk with them and to, uh, to have just a, a conversation about what these things mean. Um, so we would just ask that you would use your discretion. As the ushers come forward this morning, as we prepare to take the bread, I just uh, would ask that we would all go to, to God in prayer. God, we, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for his body that was broken for us on our behalf. And God, as we spend some time this morning remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, God, I pray that we would come to this place of worship, that we would say thank you for the cross, that we would say you're beautiful, and that God, we wouldn't take lightly the sacrifice of Jesus' body for us.
Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was actually gathered with his disciples in an upper room, and they were celebrating the Passover together. And a part of that meal was a piece of unleavened bread. And Jesus took that bread, which was a part of their or every day or their Passover meal every year, and he broke it, and he handed it out to his disciples, and he gave new meaning, new significance to this bread. And he told them, he said, this is my body that's broken for you. As often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray for the cup. God, I pray that, um, that our worship here would be pleasing to you. And God, as we remember the blood of Jesus on the cross for our sins, God, I pray that, um, that we wouldn't take that lightly, that it cost Jesus his life and his blood for our forgiveness. And um, God, as someone who is forgiven, God, I just I say thank you and say I love you. And um, God, this remembrance of the cross is just an act of worship, an act of love for us um, to say how much we love you and how grateful and thankful we are for the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice he made for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it true? Older than the ages, there is a promise of things yet to come. There is one born for our salvation, Jesus. There is a light that overwhelms. 
That same night, Jesus took the cup that was on the table, and he raised it up, and he said, this is now the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ and for his resurrection. And God, we put our faith, our hope, and our trust in him. And... uh, we just want to come to you this morning and say thank you for um, all that you've done for us, all that you've blessed us with. And uh, we, we wouldn't want to um, rush through life without stopping and pausing and reflecting and remembering Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. So God, I pray as uh, Pastor Dan comes and as he shares with us um, about your Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would use this time to uh, mold us, to shape us to who you want us to be, help us leave here different than we came. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A great time of worship, and I always uh, consider it a privilege to come up uh, for the message right after communion because it grounds us in the foundation of our faith, Jesus Christ, him crucified, him risen, and the promise for us that he is coming again. Today we're continuing on 
in our series entitled God in Me. It's a series about the Holy Spirit, who He is, and who He wants to be for us. Last week, uh, we looked at the tough love, truth-telling ministry of the Holy Spirit and how He is able to shine the light of God's truth into our lives. He confronts those deep personal issues in us that aren't in alignment with that truth and thus need to address. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and that it convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, not only drawing unbelievers to Jesus, but also pointing prodigal Christians back to Jesus or leading growing Christians closer to Jesus, the point being that the Holy Spirit always speaks truth into our lives and that he always does so for our good. Now, before we move on, there's one final lingering question you might have left over from last week, and I want to touch on that briefly. The question is this, how exactly does the Holy Spirit speak to us, right? So if the Spirit of truth is the one who speaks truth into our lives, well, how exactly does he do that? Well, for starters, it very likely will not be a direct audible voice, and I'm serious when I say that, really. Now, can God do that? Of course he can. And are there examples in the Bible of that taking place? Yes, there are. But what distinguishes us as the people of God today compared to back then are a couple significant differences. First of all, the Holy Spirit lives in us as Christians today. That's the truth, but that wasn't the case for God's people until after the time of Jesus and the establishment of the church and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. So one difference. And the other, too, is that the complete Bible as God's Word is available to us as Christians today as well. Again, that wasn't the case until centuries after the church of Jesus Christ was established. And so because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us and because we have the complete Bible is God's word to us, when you put those two together, you realize this, that the primary way we hear from God today is when the Spirit of God speaks through the word of God to our spirits within us. Let me say that again. The primary way we hear from God today is when the Spirit of God speaks through the Word of God to our spirits within us. It's not an audible voice, but it is a genuine spiritual impression, right? Something is taking place inside of us. And that impression is one that always confirms, not contradicts the truth of Scripture. What's one way you can tell if God's speaking to us? Well, if it goes against what the Bible says, you know that's not him. It's a confirmation, not a contradiction. And when that happens, the Spirit illumines that truth in a way that resonates deep within us, a way that is supernatural, beyond logic and human understanding. Now, I can't tell you how that works, right? But I'm okay with that. And you should be too. It's okay to have a little mystery in your faith. Mystery when it comes to the things of God where you can't explain everything about it. Listen, I don't know how that happens, but just about every week I'll have someone tell me after the services something like this. I felt like you were speaking directly to me. Or what you said today is exactly what I needed. Or it's like you knew what was going on in my life. Never had that experience? Yeah, it happens. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I work extensively with the NSA, CIA, and FBI. (laughs) We have silent drones tracking your every move. But apart from that, no, 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 no. I can't explain how God can take one and the same message and make it feel so personal to so many people. And yet, in another sense, I think I can explain it because it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to speak to our spirits within us. And that's not just with sermons. Happens with worship music, Bible studies, community groups, growth classes, along with our own personal reading of the Scriptures, right? And so my encouragement to you is this, that if you sense the Holy Spirit is saying something to you through the Bible, pay attention to that. Even though you can't explain it, don't talk yourself out of it. It is the Spirit of truth within you. Well, that puts a bow on last week. As we move on today, I want to talk about another ministry that the Holy Spirit has in our lives, and that is his ability and his desire to change us. His ability and his desire to change us. He can and he wants to change who we are. Now, 
When I bring up the word change, I realize that there is a potential cringe factor with that word. That I think for a lot of us, there are negative feelings associated with this whole idea of change, and a lot of that is due to personal failures we've experienced in our past, right? So take, for instance, the whole world of diet and fitness. I don't think I have ever met a person, male or female, who is fully content with their looks, their health, their physique, their diet, and their exercise plan. Never. Now, I have met plenty of people who are pleased with their progress in these areas, because they're quick to tell you about it, but, um, or at least post a bunch of selfies, right? Um, No. Okay, just so you know, I'm like all for diet and fitness, right? And I know that's coming from the pastor who, you know, leads a church where we sell donuts every week, so you just got to kind of set that aside, right? No. Right, these things are important. We need to pay attention to that. What did we see last week? That you know, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. But getting back to this whole idea of change, of diet and fitness, you know, I've seen a lot of people start something for a season, but I don't see a lot stay with it for the long haul. Right? So many fads, so many kicks, and as quickly as the weight comes off, after a while, especially during times of stress or life throws you a curveball, it just comes back on just as quickly. And after a while, you go through these right victory and defeat cycles, right? You eventually feel like giving up, and you conclude that genuine, long-lasting change in this area of life really isn't possible. But diet fitness is one example. I see it, too, with marriage, Right? Can spouses really change? Do spouses really want to change? Now, I know this can go both ways, but the stereotype is something like this, right? The husband feels like his wife is always trying to change him, while the wife feels like her husband is unwilling to change. Don't try to change me. He says, why won't you change? She responds, and on and on it goes. And because there's this stalemate, they eventually then fall together in just these unhealthy patterns of relating to each other, which after a while become familiar to them. And that familiarity, no matter how unhealthy it is, eventually becomes their normal. One marriage therapist who was interviewed about the topic of change in marriage says this. He says, I've come to believe that most of the couples who come to see me just want to figure out a way for them to, listen to this, stay the same without the pain. They want to stay the same without the pain. The implication is they'd rather stick with the familiarity of dysfunction, removing the pain, rather than running the risk of the discomfort of change. So instead of pursuing health, they settle for avoiding pain. And for some of you who have endured a relationship like that, or maybe it just eventually imploded, it's hard not to become cynical with this whole idea of change. And so here I stand up here today and tell you that the Holy Spirit not only wants to change and grow you, but that he's also able to make that happen. He is, if you're willing to cooperate with his work. See, the Holy Spirit who lives in us is able to take the imperfect, inconsistent, self-centered people that we are and turn us into better versions of ourselves. right? It is possible, and better versions of the self in the sense that we can become increasingly more like Jesus in who we are, what we do, and how we love. That is the change that God wants to bring about in our lives to increasingly become more like Jesus and who we are, what we do, and how we love. So what do you need to know about this process of change that the Holy Spirit wants to bring about in your life? Well, three things. First of all, you need to know that change is possible. Change is possible, that no matter what kind of defeats and failures you've experienced in the past, genuine life change brought about by the Holy Spirit in you is possible. And it's possible because change is no longer a matter of your best self trying to overcome your worst self. I mean, we've all been there, right? Three steps forward, three steps back, up, down, back, forward, progress, regress, all over the place, right? But it's a different battle now, right? Because of the Holy Spirit, because of God in me as a Christian, the equation has changed. Look at this, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, verse 2. Therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, maybe that's your takeaway for today. Communion is the reminder that there is no condemnation for the believer in Jesus Christ. No matter the defeats you experience, no matter the failures you feel stuck in, your standing with God is not on the basis of your performance, it's on the basis of Jesus' performance for you, right? 
no condemnation. Paul goes on, though, right? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have been set free. Now, here's what you need to know here. This is very important about these two terms in Romans 8, 2. The law of sin and death and the law of the Spirit. Because they don't use the word law the way we normally think about the word law. Normally, we hear the word law, and we think of, you know, a bunch of rules enforced by the government. Obey the law, pay your taxes, don't go over the speed limit, don't take other people's stuff, things like that. But that's not how the Apostle Paul is using the word law here. Rather, I want you to think about law as in the expression, you know, the law of gravity, right? Law of gravity. See, law of gravity wasn't enacted by Congress. It wasn't something we voted on. No, it's just a description of how the world works, right? I mean, in non-scientific terms, we say the law of gravity is something like this. What goes up must come down. That the pull of gravity keeps us grounded on this earth. And so when Paul says the law of sin and death, he is describing our existence apart from Christ, that no matter how hard we try to be good and please God in our own strength, we can never rise above the pull of the law of sin and death. Our self-centered nature keeps us captive. But, Paul goes on, that because of Jesus, because of his sacrificial death, because of his victorious resurrection, all of us who have experienced this liberating salvation, we are now subject to a new law or a new way that describes how things work, the law of the Spirit. You know, spiritually speaking, it's like going from earth to space, from being permanently grounded in our selfishness to now being able to soar above that, to be able to move ahead in spiritual maturity. This is how it works for those of us who've been given life, who have been set free by the Holy Spirit. Because of him, change is now possible. Not only that, but we also need to know that change is progressive, right? Change is possible, but change is also progressive. We are saved in an instant but we grow over time. Right? That's how the Christian life works. We are saved in an instant, but we grow over time. It's important to understand that while genuine spiritual change is now possible for us as believers, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So yes, we are born again. Yes, we've been given a new nature. Yes, we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. And all that immediately became ours right? when we trusted in Jesus and his saving work. And yet we still, right? we still wrestle with the inner sin nature that has been defeated but not yet been destroyed. The inner sin nature in us that has been defeated but not yet destroyed. It's what the Bible tells us, but it's also what we personally experience it, isn't it? That with every outburst of anger, with every fit of jealousy, with every twinge of greed, we are reminded the process of change is far from over. And it's important to understand that because we need a perspective about life change that is both biblical and realistic. Look at this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you see that word, the Spirit, and free or freedom? They're, they're together all the time. Change is possible. We have been set free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now look at this, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. It's a reference that Paul has in talking about the ministry of, of Moses earlier in, in, in 2 Corinthians. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Look at those phrases. We are being transformed into the Lord's image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is change. This is growth. This is, to use a technical theological term, the process of sanctification. And this is God's will for every one of us as Christians that progressively over time, fueled by the Holy Spirit, we are increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus in who we are, what we do, and how we love. Right? Now this idea of progressive change is important for us to grasp for a couple reasons. First of all, it's important for those of us who tend to think highly of ourselves. Because it's a humble reminder that we haven't yet arrived and that God still has a lot of work to do in us. But then second, it's also important for those of us who tend to get down on ourselves. Because we look at our failures in the moment and conclude that we're no good, that nothing's really changed at all, and that God's pretty much fed up with us. A passage like this reminds us that no one reaches perfection this side of heaven, that failure is always going to be part of our spiritual journey. 
Not that we're planning for it, not that we want it to happen, but we shouldn't be surprised when it does. And so in those moments of personal spiritual disappointment, they should lead us back once again to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, the same grace that we need just as much today as when we first believed. Change is possible. Change is progressive. And finally, change is promised. Change is promised. This might be the most encouraging of them all. See, our view on life change that's brought about by the Holy Spirit not only needs to be biblical, it not only needs to be realistic, but it also needs to be hopeful. Because this kind of change is promised to us by God himself. Look at this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians, says this, that being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He being God, he being the Holy Spirit, began this good work of life transformation in us at the moment of our salvation, the moment when the law of the Spirit set us free from the law of sin and death. And Paul doesn't say that this good work might carry on to completion or perhaps it will carry on to completion. No, he simply says that it will. It will carry on to completion the day of the Lord's return. It is a promise from God himself to us as his children that there is absolutely nothing, right? Nothing out there, nothing in here that can stand in the way of God keeping his promises. And I love how Paul throws in that phrase, being confident of this. See, Paul's confident because he's not looking at his own maddening inconsistency. No, he's confident because this whole idea and promise of life change comes from none other than God himself comes from this same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And that's why we, too, can be just as confident. Listen, it is the Holy Spirit, it is God in you, it is God in me that makes all this possible. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of trying to change my own and all the mixed results that come out of that. I'm tired of those times when I hurt other people or let myself down, because what? I just don't know what to do or say or feel or be what I need to in the moment. And yet in the midst of that discouragement, the Holy Spirit comes in, speaks truth into my life that because of him, change is really possible. A change that will be progressive, won't happen overnight. And yet a change in the midst of my deepest disappointments that is promised to me. That the Spirit is making me increasingly over time to become more like Jesus in who I am, what I do, and how I love. It's true for me as a believer. It's true for you as well, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, for some of us here, this is exactly what we needed to hear today. And we needed to hear it either as an encouraging reminder, or for some of us, maybe this is just new news all together, that you're not in this Christian life thing alone, that God, the Holy Spirit, is in you and wants to bring about life change. But then for the rest of us, when it comes to this whole idea of life change, we need something more specific, right? Something more practical. You know, what can we do? What do we need to do on our part to help make this change happen? How do we make this change happen? Do we just sit back? Do we, you know, how, how does that work? You know, and even as I say that, you might be thinking, Back to something I said in the last series, right? When we talked about spiritual growth and this whole word picture of the sailboat, right? Remember that? That is the power of the wind that moves a sailboat forward, and yet we have to do some work on our part to raise the sails in order to catch the wind. Well, likewise, in the spiritual realm, the power for life change comes from the Holy Spirit. And yet there is effort on our part, isn't there, that we need to put forth in order to cooperate with his work within us. It's this very dynamic we see in a passage like Galatians chapter 5. Paul says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Do you ever have one of those, um, I thought it was just me kind of moments before? 
where you're talking with someone, they're telling you about a problem they're going through. You know, maybe they're talking about a big money argument they had with their spouse the other day or how their in-laws are trying to parent their kids or how, you know, they were alone on a Friday night and it just was so miserable. And whatever it is, they tell us this. And while we feel for them, we think to ourselves, wow, I've gone through that too. I thought it was just me. And so even though they're, you know, airing out their problems, you strangely are comforted by the fact, right? that you've gone through that too? And that's what I think of when I read verse 17. That in me as a Christian, there are still these desires of my flesh that are against the Spirit. Now the flesh here, what the Scripture also calls a sinful nature, is that anti-God, self-centered presence that's been within us since our birth, right? As Christians, like I said earlier, the flesh has been defeated but not yet been destroyed. And so while it is no longer our master, it still is trying to exert some influence over our lives. And so there's this internal spiritual conflict that goes on within us that what? That reminds us that our desires aren't always the best indicator of what's right. And that we need to pursue God-pleasing, love-motivated, other-focused things that are spoken to us by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so we read this and what Paul's trying to say here, and we say, really, that's what's going on? I thought it was just me. See, my struggles, it's not because I'm not a Christian. It's not because I'm a lost cause. It's not because I'm trying to go out of my way to do hurtful things and selfish things. It's because my desires, the desires of my flesh, they're against what the Spirit wants to do in my life. Does that make sense? It's not just you. But let's be clear about something. Verse 17, it's an explanation. It's not an excuse, right? Verse 17 is an explanation. It's not an excuse. As Christians, we don't just throw up our hands, give up, and say, well, it's no use. I guess that's just the way it's going to be, or I can't help myself, right? No, verse 17 is an explanation, and it's also a motivation, a motivation to obey what we read in verse 16. Again, what does Paul say there? He says, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So yes, while the flesh is still with us this side of heaven, God hasn't left us as helpless victims. The Holy Spirit, we are no longer in bondage to our sinful nature. We have a source of new life, new desires, new power. And so what more willpower and greater determination on our end can never do, the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to not give in to our sinful desires. He gives us a desire to want to honor God. See, verse 16 is a command. It's also a promise. Do this, and this will happen. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So now we're thinking, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, right? Walk by the Spirit means to live in moment-by-moment dependence upon God. It is far more than just a one-time decision. That's why I think Paul uses the word walk, right? It's not something you choose and don't have to think about anymore, right? No, walking by the Spirit is ongoing submission to and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. It means we begin each new day with a conscious recognition of the Spirit's power and presence in our lives. You think about that, you tap into that, you strive to be constantly aware of this reality that you are not alone, that God is with you, that God is for you, and that God is in you. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, he can give you the strength to resist temptation. He can give you the desire to make God-pleasing choices. And because the Holy Spirit is a person, you have a relationship with him, a relationship that needs to be nurtured and cultivated. And how do you do that? Well, it's just like any human relationship. A kind of nurture and cultivation requires time, requires energy, it requires attention. Take going to church, for instance, right? There's nothing magical about coming to church every week, and yet it makes a difference. If you think about your weekend and church is always the last result, resort, not first priority, you know, like, oh, gee, I don't have anything else going on. I might as well go to church, right? I'm not really sure then that you can say you're trying to walk by the Spirit. I don't say that as a guilt trip, or I'm not saying that if you, you know, miss a couple Sundays in a row, you're destined to crash and burn. I'm just trying to capture what I think this, the Scriptures are saying here. Why? Because walking implies effort. Walking implies movement, and walking implies a direction. As I heard one pastor put it, you need to ask yourself the question, if I'm heading in a direction, then which way are my feet pointed? 
which way are my feet pointed? And pointed toward God and toward his will? Or pointed away from him in pursuit of my own agenda? Walk, move by the Spirit, and you will change. Well, as I begin to wrap up, I want to finish by talking about how we measure our progress, that if indeed we are walking by the Spirit, and if indeed the Holy Spirit has the power to change us, then how do we know that's actually happening? What should we be looking for? Do you look at things like church attendance, church giving, church involvement, church friendship, church commitment? Is it simply a matter of the more the better? What does real change look like? Well, the Bible addresses this as well. And it does so in a way that runs contrary to the way a lot of Christians think. See, far too often churches and believers focus on the inputs rather than the outcomes, right? We focus on the inputs rather than the outcomes. Inputs, like I mentioned earlier, you know, church attendance, church giving, church involvement, church friendships, church commitments, things like that. Now, just to be clear, inputs like these can help us change, but they don't necessarily mean that we've changed, right? Can I say that again? Inputs like these church commitments, right? They can help us change, but they don't necessarily mean that we've changed. No, the true measure of change isn't the inputs. Rather, it's the outcomes, or as the Bible puts it, it's the fruit of our lives. That's why Paul, when he talks about walking by the Spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh, goes on to say in Galatians 5, verse 19, that the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy— Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunken orgies, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Acts of the flesh, outcomes of life. Paul spells out 15 different behaviors and attitudes here, and in case he missed anything, he just says, and the like, right? So you go down the list of 15, you go, whew, I wasn't busted. He just goes, well, and the like, right? Pretty much covering everything else. But you know, what he's saying here, it's not so much to give a checklist as it is to paint a picture. To paint a picture of a life that is still in bondage to the flesh, a life that is still self-focused and anti-God. So sure, we can say we don't struggle with things like idolatry and witchcraft, but impurity, jealousy, selfish ambition. And you know what's scary about this picture is that church people can do these things. Actually, some church people can do these things really well, Right? Congregations filled with discord. Pastors caught up in sexual immorality. Board members marked by fits of rage. That's why we don't measure life change by the inputs. We don't measure life change by the status or the title or the reputation. We look at the outcomes. The acts of the flesh are obvious, but, and Paul goes on, but, many you know this passage, but the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or, 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 or patience, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Again, not a checklist, but a picture. Picture of a spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-changed life. Now remember, change is progressive, so even the best of us aren't going to demonstrate these character qualities perfectly and consistently. But by the grace of God, that's the goal. Because as we see these things in our life, it is evidence that we are becoming more like Jesus in who we are, what we do, and how we love. Peace over worry. Faithfulness over flakiness. Gentleness over harshness, right? And the longer we walk by the Spirit over the course of our lives, we should be able to step back and see evidence of some kind of progress, right? We should. Some kind of evidence that we are bearing this kind of spiritual fruit. Maybe not in the course of weeks and months, but certainly over the course of years and decades. Change is possible. This is our target. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, imagine. Imagine the kind of influence the body of Christ could have if more Christians lived like this in their church, in their homes, in their workplaces, and in their communities. You measure the progress not by the inputs, you measure them by the outcomes, by the fruit in your life. So for some of us, this passage means a change of direction. For others of us, it just means we need to keep on going. 
But for all of us, we must walk by the Spirit in His power and in His presence. And so as I wrap up today, I want to leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul. As he concludes this section, he's talked about fruit. He's made the comparison. He's talked about the struggle. He's showed us the victory by the Spirit. And so he says this, verse 24, verse 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we remember the cross through communion, when we partake of the bread and the cup, it's a reminder of our union with Jesus that when he was crucified on the cross, so were we. His sins, or our sins, laid on him, crucified. And because of this union with Christ, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. I love that expression. Right? So as Christians, we belong to God. The Holy Spirit is proof of that, right? The law of the Spirit who gives us life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That our passions, our desires have been crucified with Christ. And so because of that, we now live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the goal, this conscious moment-by-moment recognition that God is in me. And I walk with him every hour of my week and every area of my life. That's how change happens. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement that you provide through the Holy Spirit in us. Thank you what was impossible in our own strength is now very much possible because the law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. And Father, my prayer is for people who feel the battle. They're in here, they feel the struggle. They feel mired in defeat. They can't see any progress. Lord, would you give them hope? That change is possible. It's going to be progressive, maybe not a straight line, but it's going to happen because change is promised by you. Father, thank you too that the Holy Spirit not only gives us the, the power to change, but he gives us the desire to change. And some of us, Lord, you just need to jumpstart our cold, callous, and indifferent hearts. And perhaps we just are loving things that aren't in align with your will for our lives. So change our hearts. Change our affections. That we may change the direction and the way our feet are pointed. And that we would walk by the Spirit. Father, let us experience a taste a taste of that victory, a victory that you guarantee, that you promise. Jesus, when we see you again, this we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.
Whenever we sing that song, you know, I think of it in two ways. I I think, you know, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, and Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A couple reminders. Tonight at 6 p.m., we have our Sunday night spotlight. Pastor Ken and I are going to have an extended informal time of teaching about the Holy Spirit right in this room, 6 o'clock. We'll go for about an hour and have some time for questions from the audience and uh, look forward to sharing that with you next Sunday. We'll continue on in our God and Me series and talk about the peace and the comfort that the Holy Spirit can bring into our lives. Of course, remember to set your clocks back an hour or two. God bless you as you go from here.